in the ministry is Martin Lloyd-Jones. I never met him. He died in 1981, but he had a thriving pulpit ministry in London in the mid-20th century. And in the 1950s, he did a series of evangelistic sermons uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it was in that series of sermons that he makes a distinction between advice and news. And I have used that distinction before with you. Perhaps you remember that. Advice is counsel about something that has not happened yet. Okay? But you can do it. It's something that you can do in order to improve your well-being. All right? That's advice. But news is a report about something that's already occurred. Something that has been achieved. Something that has been accomplished for you. And all you have to do is respond accordingly. Respond to it. And the gospel, and what is the gospel? You should know the gospel. The gospel is essentially the doing and the dying, the rising and the ruling of our Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. The gospel is news. It's not advice. Now, um, to paint this picture, he says... Think about a king. A king goes to battle against an invading army to to protect his land. And this king defeats the enemy. Okay? He defeats this invading army. And then what he does, he sends out messengers. Heralds. Okay? And what these heralds do is they go out and they pronounce and they announce that Victory has been achieved. The king has won the battle. The enemy is defeated. All right? That's what a herald does. It's been accomplished. Therefore, in light of the king's victory, respond with joy. And go in your life in the peace that he has accomplished for you. That's what a herald does after a king wins the victory. But, it, but if this king doesn't defeat the enemy, okay, he doesn't send out heralds. He sends out military advisors. And these military advisors go forth and they tell the subjects of the kingdom, here's what you need to do to procure your well-being. Here's where you dig your trenches. This is where you build your blockades. This is where you set forth your marksmen and your horsemen. In other words, you need to fight for your lives. And here's what Lord John said. Every other religion in the world sends out military advisors. Here's rules. Here's principles. Here's laws to keep in order To have well-being in order to have salvation. Here's what you do. In other words, they give advice. But in Christianity, the king doesn't send out military advisors. He sends out heralds. Because the victory has been won. Do you know, in fact, that the word for preaching in the New Testament, the most common word is caruso. Which means to herald. The Kerouks is the herald. He's the preacher. He proclaims the good news 
that the king has won the battle. Victory is secured. Of course, there are commands to obey in Christianity, isn't there? There are commands, but the reasons for our obedience are different than the other religions. In every other religion, the reasons for obedience is fear or guilt. Here's what I must do to appease the gods. Here's what I must do to procure well-being for myself. But in Christianity, the reason we obey is joy. Joy because peace has been achieved. Gratitude because the king has won the victory. He has defeated our enemies. And that's what Christianity or Christmas is all about. It's the good news that the king has come. And that's what Luke the herald is all about. Luke is heralding to Theophilus. About the king who has come and who has procured salvation for Theophilus. He has procured salvation for the people of God at Fisherville. And so he heralds about the king, who he is and what he has done. And that's what our text is about today. At this point in our text, this is the hundredth sermon in our series in Luke. And... Now we're in Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. All right? Jesus is five days out from the cross. In fact, from here to all the way to Luke 24 will be five days in his life. Uh, He's going to slow down time at this point because this week is very significant for our salvation. And so uh, it is Palm Sunday and the king is coming. Uh, and he's going to consummate this this week by a cross. And through that cross and through the resurrection and the pending enthronement or ascension, he's going to be enthroned as God's king. He's going to be enthroned as Israel's king. In, indeed, the Davidic king, the king of the earth. And our text today gives us a snapshot, kind of a microcosm, Okay. Of what happens when the king comes to bear among the people of God. Now, there are no commands to obey in this text. Okay? So, when you read it, it's easy just to gloss over it. It's easy to look when you're reading the Bible at for the principles to hang on to. Okay? Commands to obey. But the fact is, the Bible's not essentially about us. It's about the king. And so this text, though there are no commands to obey, is very relevant to us. Because what we're going to see in this text is how disciples respond. Patterns of response when the king comes. When the king enters your life, how do you respond? These patterns of response, the normal response of the disciple. Well, let's look uh, in starting in verse 28. And it says, And when he had said these things. Now, last week, the small elect few that were here heard the parable of the ten minas. That's what he is speaking of there where he has entrusted these minas 
Each person has a mina that they will be held accountable for. And we saw that that mina is probably referring to our gospel-deposited lives. It's different than the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 because there everybody has different talents. Somebody has five talents and somebody has two talents and somebody has one talent. Everybody has different abilities. In fact, in that parable, it clearly uh, refers to our abilities. Okay, But in this parable we looked at last week, Everybody has the same amount of minas. Each one of us has a mina. You have a gospel-deposited life that you're going to be held accountable to when he returns in the second advent. And so that's what he's speaking of there. And it says, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, we saw in Luke 9:51 that's where he set his face towards Jerusalem. That's where the sacrifices were offered. It's where the the lambs, okay, were offered um, that appeased the wrath of God for sinners. And, of course, we know all of those sacrifices pointed us to the one who would come and offer himself once for all for the atonement of sin. And so here he is in Jerusalem. And I think there's something gloriously audacious and courageous about what we see in verse 28. Because if you look in John's account, in, in, the, in this very um, you know, equivalent text in John chapter 12, it says at this point, he is in a lot of hot water, Jesus is. In fact, the authorities have said, they have announced to the crowd that uh, if you know where this Jesus is, inform the authorities so we can arrest him. That's where things are at this present moment. And so here we have Jesus who's coming publicly into Jerusalem. He's not cowering in fear. Why? Because this is why he came. The time has been fulfilled. The Christ has come for this very moment. Now notice with me in verse 29. It says that um, when he drew near to Bethpage... And Bethany, um, at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. You know, Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem. It's kind of like Fisherville to Louisville. It's just a suburb. It would have been considered a part of the greater metropolitan area of Jerusalem. Uh, Bethany is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In fact, just days before this entry, guess what had happened in Bethany? (coughs) Jesus had raised Lazarus from the grave. Okay, so things are hopping around there at this point. And there's a crowd who who witnesses this resurrection. And it's this very crowd. And the reason we say that John 11 makes it very clear. The crowd that was here in Jerusalem as he enters is the very crowd who has witnessed him raising Lazarus from the grave. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, they saw it and they beheld his glory in that, what's interesting is that this place Bethany has an Arabic name today, El Azi 
Rayi. You know what the name means? <clears throat> Lazarus. And so the name still um, uh, resounds in uh, that place today because of what happened 2,000 years ago when he was raised out of the tomb. Uh, the, the town is named after the most, its most famous citizen. Well, we don't know where Bethpage is. It, it was a small community. It's probably just, again, a part of the greater Bethany area. Uh, but notice, they're on the Mount of Olives. They're at the mount that is called Olivet. Olivet stands 2,660 feet above sea level. And you can, uh, you can see directly across to the temple, okay, at this time. But more importantly, Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives had messianic significance in the first century. In fact, if you go all the way back to Zechariah, and Zechariah is the prophet that is most often quoted by the Gospels. A lot of people don't realize that, but the Gospels are more dependent on uh, Zechariah than any other prophet. And in Zechariah chapter 14, in chapter 14 it says that um, there's a hope. And in Zechariah 14 verse 4, it says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Zechariah is speaking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was the great day that the Jews hoped for. The day of the Lord was when God would vindicate his name, save his people, and judge his enemies. And he says on that day, the king, the Messiah, uh, will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you read on in that chapter, chapter 14, there's a lot of things that happen on that day that can only be achieved through two advents, okay? But the fact that he's standing on the Mount of Olives tells us that that plan is now underway. That process is now underway. The day of the Lord is underway. In fact, when he returns, here's what's going to happen. Chapter 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that's what's going to, to uh, be achieved through the advents of Jesus Christ. David had his mighty men who brought him water. <laughs> and then he poured it out. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm just... <laughs> so the Mount of Olivet here is significant. And on that mount, he sends for a colt. He sends for a colt. And it's not just a, any kind of colt, it's a donkey colt. Now, why would he send for a donkey colt? Well, again, Zechariah. 500 years earlier, when Zechariah is prophesying about the coming king. Now, keep in mind, in this day, they had no king. They'd been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And now they've been redeemed out of Babylonian captivity and they are back in their land. And the best thing they have, they don't have a king, they have a governor who's been appointed by the pagan nation over them. And his name is Zerubbabel. But in that day they promised, uh, Zechariah promises that a king's coming. 
Who's going to right the wrong? Who's going to save the people? Who's going to vindicate the name of God in the day of the Lord? And here's what it says about that day. Zechariah 9, verse 9. He, he is speaking here of that day when the Messiah will come. And in Zechariah 9, verse 9, he says, um, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, isn't that remarkable? So what Jesus is asking for, Jesus is signaling I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the fulfillment of that hope. I am the coming king who's going to bring salvation. He's identifying himself with that person. Now that presents a dilemma though. Because he says righteous and having salvation is he. Here's the question. How can God be righteous? And save unrighteous people. That's really the dilemma of the Bible. The dilemma in our culture is this. How can a loving God allow someone to go to hell? That's not the dilemma of Scripture. The dilemma of Scripture is how can a righteous God save unrighteous people? How can a righteous God allow unrighteous people into heaven? That's the dilemma Scripture poses. In fact, that is... a kind of a tension that is trying to work out throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in, in Isaiah chapter 46, you have this language where uh, in verse 10 or verse 12 to 13, it says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. This is Yahweh speaking. He's speaking to those who are far from righteousness. Who's he speaking to? Us. Okay. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. Now that really creates a dilemma. How can the righteous God save people who are far from righteous? Well, it's simply this. The righteousness of God... Slays us. The righteousness of God requires that he judge our sin. It requires that because he's holy. He is just. He is righteous. So the righteousness of God is bad news. But the righteousness from God is our salvation. The righteousness from God, which is communicated through this king. Because what this king has done for the first 30 years of his life, he's obeyed God for us. He's obeyed the law in our place. In other words, he's fulfilled righteousness. So that that righteousness could be credited to us. It's called justification. And then our unrighteousness... It's going to be credited to him, imputed to him. And in five days, he's going to be nailed to a cross. And he's going to be treated as an unrighteous sinner. 
so that God could be both just and the justifier for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's this king who comes on this colt of a donkey, this fold of a donkey. He is coming as the righteous one, bringing salvation. But there's something else here as well. This text speaks to Jesus' disposition. It's remarkable. He is coming as the humble servant of God. You know, Clarence McCartney says, How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time no wall is broken down for entry. This time no garlanded hero standing in his war chariot. Instead of that... Just a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. In other words, Jesus, by riding in on a borrowed donkey, is making a statement. He's the humble king. He is the servant king. I mean, this is a strange juxtaposition. When you're living in the first strength, or even today, when you think about kings, you think about majesty. You think about nobility. And Jesus doesn't fit into the world's categories of kingship. He's bringing together in this act both majesty and meekness. Exaltation through humiliation. Uh, What is considered to be... uh, One of the most, I guess, famous and best sermons ever written and preached in American history was written and preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards in 1738. And the title of the sermon was The Excellencies of Christ. And it was was motivated by his reflections on Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. And, of course, you know... In that particular chapter, John has had this prophetic vision. And this elder, an elder says to John, don't grieve. Don't grieve. The the shoot from David, the king of David, from the tribe of Judah has conquered. And then he looks and This elder has said, this is a lion. He is a lion from the tribe of Judah. But when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. Between the the throne and the elder, he sees what? A lamb. As if slain. He thought he was going to see a a lion, but instead he sees a lamb. And here's what Edward says in that sermon. The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience and is sacrificed for food and clothing. But we see that Christ is in the text compared to both. Because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully met in him. And then he proceeds to to list all the ways that these attributes um, of Jesus that seemingly contradict one another are communicated through his person. In Jesus, we find infinite majesty, but utter humility. Perfect justice, yet exceeding grace. 
This is Edwards. Meticulous sovereignty and yet absolute submission to God. And complete trust but utter dependency on the Father. Indeed, he is the excellent king. He's the excellent Christ. This text is communicating to us the glory of our Lord Jesus so that it would provoke worship in us. And so if we are bored by the text, something is inherently wrong. He's the excellent king. He's the excellent Christ. Indeed, he is Lord. Notice in verse 31. I love this. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. Now, that name Lord, that would have been a very controversial name to the Jews. The, the Greek word is kurios. It is, the, it is the Greek word that translates Yahweh in the Old Testament. This takes us back all the way to Exodus chapter 3. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, has his encounter with God at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And he asks God this question. He says, what is your name? Now, he's not just wanting an identifying marker. To ask God his name is to ask, what kind of God are you? Okay? Because the names in that day were connotative. They connote something of the character and the person of the one named. And here's what God said to him. My name is the Lord. And he says, this is the name that I want to be known throughout all generations. You can't get any clearer than that, can you? He is saying there, this is my name. In other words, from all, from, for all generations, I want to be known by this name. In other words, the most central reality of who God is, He is Lord. In other words, if you are saved, it's because you have bowed to His Lordship. It's not because you made Him Lord. You can't make the Lord Lord. He is the Lord. That's like making me Brian Payne. I am Brian Payne. And so if you're saved today, it's because not you've made him Lord. It's because you've bowed to his lordship. You've submitted to him. My, I'm giving you my life. You are Lord. And if you haven't done that, he is not your Lord. Which means he is not your Savior. In fact, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses goes on and says, Show me your ways Show me your glory. And here's what God says. He says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And I will proclaim to you my name. Isn't that interesting? He says, show me your way, show me your glories. And what God does is says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to proclaim to you my name. Because in my name is my glory. In my name are my ways. And here's what he says. The Lord, the Lord. Merciful and gracious. God is expounding his name to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions and sins. But who will by no way clear the guilty? That's the glory of God that is pronounced to Moses. Now think about that. He forgives iniquity and 
transgression and sin because he's slow to anger and he's merciful and gracious. And yet he will not let the guilty get away with their sin. How can that be? That seems to be illogical. That God is going to nail the guilty, but he's going to forgive the guilty. How can he do that? Through the cross. Through the cross. It is through the cross the Lord reveals his glory and his ways to Moses. And that's where the Lord is headed. He's headed to the cross. He's five days out. And he says, you tell them the Lord has need of this. That's a theological statement. And as we know, the Lord created all things. And as we look at in Colossians 1, and I prayed this morning, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Everything. Everything in your house, everything in your life, everything in the universe was created through Christ the Lord and for Christ the Lord. To put it another way, this donkey was made by Christ the Lord for Christ the Lord. Now look with me in verse 32 to 34. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Isn't that interesting? They probably thought they were trying to steal it. And they said, The Lord has need of it. And we see here as well, I think, by implication, how we ought to respond um, by, to his claim of ownership. Uh, it doesn't tell us, but it's very clear that the owners of this donkey let them have it. Okay? There's no contesting. They're not saying, well, this is our donkey, and we're going to use this donkey the way we see fit. They just heard the Lord has need of it. So they bowed to his lordship And they allowed this donkey to go in service of the Lord. I was reflecting on that this week. And this question I kind of posed to myself. Do you understand that this is the only way to flourish as a human? The way the owners of this donkey responded? To this demand. Think about it. If everything was created by Christ the Lord. And for Christ the Lord. Then everything you have. Everything that's been entrusted to you. Right now in your life. Is not for you. It's for him. It's not for your personal kingdom building. That's going to be crushed when he returns. In the second advent. It's for him. And it's understanding this that we flourish as human beings. In other words, if I use these things for my personal use at the expense of the king, I will not thrive because that's not how I was created to thrive. Rather, I'm actually pushing back on the way I was created. And that's why so many people, most people are malfunctional and dysfunctional. 
They're living in opposition to the way they were created. Some of the most miserable people on the face of the earth are wealthy people. Americans. Okay? And so a good test is to ask this question with regard... Now, what has God entrusted to you? He's, regarded, he's, he's entrusted to you time. He's entrusted to you talents. Okay? Abilities. He's entrusted to you treasures, material things. That's what He's entrusted to you. So with regard to these things... In what way does the Lord have need of them? That's a good question to ask. In what way does the Lord have need of what he has entrusted to you? Your time, your talents, and your treasures. Is that a question you ask? Of course, we know that regard to Jesus' being, he is the Son of God. He is in need of nothing. All right? In fact... Uh, Psalm 24 tells us the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So he owns everything. Indeed, everything possessed by us comes from him. James 1 tells us every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And so when we give something back to God, we're only giving him what he first gave us. Didn't we see that in the parable of the stewards? So God is in need of nothing. But God has created us. And he has determined that we would be meaningful to him in his kingdom purposes. We see that all the way back in Genesis 1. When he creates Adam and Eve as his image bearers who are called to to fill the earth with his glory to subdue it and to rule. He has determined, he has decreed that we are to be meaningful to him in his kingdom purposes. Indeed, this is a God-centered universe. It is a Christ-centered universe, and therefore we only find our meaning in him. And so God is blessed, and we flourish, we benefit when we worshipfully serve him. Okay? And that's kind of an example we see from this, these owners of this donkey. And in this particular case, the Lord has need of this donkey because he wants to demonstrate something about the nature of his kingship. It's a humble kingship. It's a servant kingship. And in this humble state, he's going to be exalted. Notice with me in verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. The first people to give Jesus glory here is his closest disciples. Notice it says they they threw their cloaks on the colt, and they set Jesus on it. I mean, that, that, that is glorious to me. This is a public declaration that Jesus is their king. Uh, A king does not ride bareback. And since there was no saddle that was worthy of who he is, they they take their cloaks off and they place it on this donkey and then they set up on it. I mean, this is a stirring affection for the king. Now, there's no commands here, but a question we have to ask, do I have that affection? Do I have that kind of affection? 
Or did I just kind of go through the motions on Sunday to appease the day, to appease my conscience? In fact, I didn't really want to come today, but I know my Sunday, all the people in my Sunday school class are going to be on my back if I don't come. And so I'm going to be there. Oh, by the way, it's getting close to 12 o'clock. Lunchtime, my stomach is grumbling. That's not what you see here. They behold the king. And so if that's not how I am responding, if that's not the pattern of my life, perhaps my spiritual eyes have been dimmed. Perhaps my spiritual eyes are blind. This is what happens when you behold the king in his glory. And it ends up being a, a, a means of grace to others. This worship contagion is spreading. Notice in verse 36. Or 37. And as he rode along, verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is what happens when Jesus gets lifted up in worship. It becomes a means of grace to others. Others are now spreading their cloaks. They saw the disciples take their cloaks off and put them on the horse. And now they're taking their cloaks off and they're spreading it on the road. And that's the way it should be in a worship service. An unbeliever should be able to come into a worship service, 1 Corinthians 14, and they should sense the presence of God and be converted to Christ. That's what Paul says. And that's why it's important that God's people be at church. Lloyd-Jones used to make a lot of that. It's important that God's people be at church for numerous reasons. First of all, for your salvation. Do you know that... Going to church is a means of grace so that we can sanctify and conform to the likeness of Christ. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But if God's people aren't faithful to, the, to uh, local worship, when unbelievers come, they, they don't see anything. They see deadness, staleness, boredom. Worship is a means of grace. And that's what's happening. Worship is spreading like a contagion here. They're, they're spreading their, their uh, cloaks on the road. And note the juxtaposition here in verse 37. I can barely see it now. It's time for glasses. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitudes of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now notice, they're praising God. They're praising God for the mighty works of Jesus. That's remarkable. It's one of those subtle hints that He's more than just a man. He's God, a very God. But there's a juxtaposition here, okay? Um, they're praising God for the works of Christ. And as we read in the Advent readings this morning, oftentimes when Jesus would work a miracle, a sign, it would harken back to something God had done in the Old Testament. For instance, Jesus miraculously feeds the multitudes in Luke chapter 9. That's exactly what God did in the wilderness years. He fed them by the manna, Exodus chapter 16. Okay? Or there are times when Jesus will raise the dead. We saw that in Luke 7, John chapter 11. We see Yahweh raising the dead. 
in 1 Kings chapter 17, for instance. Or as we read in Isaiah 35 that speaks of Yahweh healing the lame, the blind, and the deaf. We've seen that throughout Jesus' ministry. And so oftentimes Jesus' works point back to a day when Yahweh did the very same thing. He would still the storm. Psalm 107 tells us it's Yahweh who stills the storm. So this isn't new. Praising God for Jesus' works. In fact, remember the Exodus when God delivered his people out of bondage? What, how do they respond? Worship. Exodus chapter 15 is an oracle of worship because of what God has done in delivering his people. Or perhaps uh, you see uh, the Psalms. And what are the Psalms? Most of the Psalms uh, are reflections of awe of what God has done for his people. That is the response when we behold the works of God. And in the same way, through Jesus' mighty works, God's people had experienced a theophany. What is a theophany? God in the flesh. In Jesus Christ, God in the flesh had come to rule. And where he comes to bear, to rule, God's people behold his works and they worship. That's what they do. That is the knee-jerk response. And that's my fear when I look at churches across America. I go to Africa, I go to Haiti, and I see God's people in desperation crying out to him. And then I go to a, a, a Western church and people yawn through the service. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. God help us. And in addition to worshiping uh, God for all his mighty works, notice in verse 38. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is worship. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now we know, if you have a cross-reference Bible, they are singing Psalm 118. But in Psalm 118, verse 26, it doesn't say blessed is the king. It says blessed is he. You know why they're singing blessed is the king? Because they understood something we need to understand. The Old Testament is about Jesus The Old Testament is about the king, the coming king. It's not about moral lessons. It's about the hope of the world, the coming king, the coming kingdom. And in that particular text, you have this king who's leading the pilgrims to the temple where the priests respond and bless the king. Probably on some occasion of some victory that the king has achieved. Okay, but notice as well, they are crying out peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What does that remind you of? Reminds us of a Christmas song that we sing in chapter 2 back uh, so many years ago. Chapter 2, verse 14, the, the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, there's a slight difference here. The angels sing about peace on earth. Here they're singing about peace in heaven. Is there a contradiction? No. In order for there to be peace on earth, there must be peace in heaven. 
In other words, in order for there to be peace on earth requires that sinners have peace with God in heaven. And so these, these worshipers are probably singing greater than they know. But that's what the king has come to do. He has come to procure peace in heaven so that we can have peace on earth. I love what J. Sidlow Baxter says, There will never be peace on earth until there is first glory to God in the highest. Do you get that? There will not be peace on earth. There won't be peace in a church. There won't be peace in a family until there is glory to God in the highest in that family and in that church. Here's the reason. You think about the, the planets. The reason the planets do not run into one another, collide into one another in the solar system is because the planets all agree on the center. What is the center? The sun. S-U-N. Well, and S-O-N. If each planet decided, I'm going to have a different center, what would happen? Chaos. Sinners, us, by nature are centered on a variety of things. And it certainly we're not centered on what God is centered upon. God is centered upon His glory. We were created for His glory. But in our sin, we don't center on Him. We center either on ourselves or something in the created order that we can call an idol. All right? And so the reason there's chaos and there is no peace, there is no shalom, is because all of us disagree on the center. The reason there is no peace in your home is because perhaps mom and dad, husband and wife, children, disagree on what the center is. We were created to glorify God. And when all of His his animate image bearers Agree on that center, there is peace. Peace on earth. And until then, there's chaos. Alienation. And so J. Sidlow Baxter is correct. There will not be peace on earth until there is glory to God in the highest. And here's the good news. That's why Jesus came. He came to restore the center. He came to restore the center in your life, in your marriage, in our churches. The center is the glory of God. And the way He will do that will be through a cross. And when we behold Him in all of His glory, what happens? Our center changes. It gets realigned. Of course, not everyone agrees with that. Not everyone. Notice in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What do you think about it? Have you ever seen this in a church? God's doing remarkable things and then you've got these self-righteous grumblers over there. They can't see anything that God's doing. You've got this... This is a parade with one float. And the float is Jesus. We can't even envision what, the, what it would have been like. The joy. The celebration. It would have been like a Macy's Day parade. But there's only one person in the parade. 
And then you got the grumblers. Rebuke these people for what they're doing. And I love how he responds to them. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. God doesn't need our praise. Okay? He doesn't need our praise. But the fact is, what he's saying here, Jesus is deserving of the worship of all of creation. He's the purpose of creation. The whole design of the universe is that Christ be praised. That's why you exist. To praise the Christ. That means you will not flourish as a human being until praise for Christ is the song of your life. You will continue to dig deeper and deeper holes for yourself. You become more and more miserable in your selfishness. Because you're not aligned on the correct center. Jesus is the center. And he says, if you don't praise, the rocks will cry out. And here's the question this Christmas season as we close. I go longer when the clock's not showing me up there. So, <laughs> Will you give the king the honor he deserves? Now, here's, the, here's what makes that question difficult. You can't do that by flexing your spiritual muscles. This isn't like a New Year's resolution. It's not. You you can make resolutions that are attainable. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to raise my bench press 20 pounds. You can do all those things, okay? You can stop smoking. All you can do that by, by massive willpower. But you're not going to honor the king by flexing your muscles. You honor the king by beholding his glory. And so if you're not beholding his glory today, what you need to do is cry out in desperation until he reveals his glory to you. Paul says that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this age has blinded the eyes and the minds of unbelievers. But here's what God does because he's bigger than the devil. But God who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts. He can overcome the darkness. And perhaps you're a Christian today, but your eyes have grown dim to His glory. You're just going through the motions. There's no worship in your life. You barely open your Bible at church. And your Bible stays in the, in the mirror of your car or the window of your car through the week. There's no worship. There's no praise. There's no glory. It's stale. It's boring. You dread Sunday. You need a new vision of Christ. Cry out to Him this Christmas season. He he loves. God the Spirit loves to answer those prayers. He came to glorify the Son. And so this text has shown us patterns of behavior. Patterns of response when we behold the King. Is that where you are this morning? If it's not, cry out to Him. In fact, let's take this moment to cry out to Him.
as we continue through the Advent season. Father, we, we pray.